After Fumito Ueda and the rest of the team finished production of their first title, Eco, it was time to sit down and figure out what was next. After kicking around a bunch of ideas, the team decided that they would work on an online multiplayer game in which players would encounter enormous creatures and defeat them. And while part of this concept is still found in their creation, Shadow of the Colossus, it most definitely is not the online multiplayer game that the team set out to make. So what happened? Today we're going to look at the history of Shadow of the Colossus and look back at the early history of its creator, Fumito Ueda. So stick around and join us as we traverse a barren landscape on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 164th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you the history about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming. It can be about the history of a game, a console, a person, whatever I want to talk about, as long as I can somehow make it relevant to this week, that uh, you know, the week that we publish the episode. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Shadow of the Colossus, originally released for the PlayStation 2 on October 18th, 2005. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is always wandering around barren landscapes. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what exactly are you looking for? Whatever cool stuff I can find. A lot of things that people left behind in these barren landscapes. People leave things behind in barren landscapes then? Yeah, because other people, you know, I don't know if they just drop dead while searching and, you know, their their bodies are just gone or if they, they already scavenged dead. those areas and uh, just drop some stuff off because they felt like it. But you can find some cool stuff. So your assumption is that they go into these barren landscapes, they drop dead, and they leave their stuff behind. I mean, hey, this stuff's not out there for nothing. Okay, so what you been playing? Well, Dave, this week has seen some Rocket League, some RuneScape, and some Phasmophobia, and some of the forest. Phasma- phasmophobia? Yeah. Are we picking that back up because it's spooky time? Uh, no, it's a game that I occasionally play with some friends from college, just hadn't done it in a while, and they wanted to play, so I said, yeah, why not? That can be said for any video game. Exactly. What about yourself? What have I been playing? I have played The Forest, since I believe we played that together. I have played Rocket League. I have played Forza Motorsport. Hmm. And I may have played some Disney Dreamlight Valley. Oh. So we're going to. That's an interesting one for sure. We're going to move on from that one. (laughs) Why, Dave? Why are we moving on so quick? It's Stardew Valley with with Disney characters. You can't (laughs) you can't really go wrong because, you know, it's a games like that are ones that you like pick up when you are bored and don't feel like investing in anything. Fair enough. Which we can move on with that. It's exactly what I did. I was bored, out and about, only had my phone with me, so I played it on the cloud of the Game Pass service. Wait, what? Yeah, I pl- I, I, you, I did it cloud gaming on the Game Pass service, because it's a touch-enabled game, so I, I only had my phone with me. <clears throat> I did not know that was a thing. That's pretty cool. That's why I played it, because I could do it I could do it on my phone in the middle of nowhere through cellular, you know, without a controller. Wow. Okay, so... Have you ever played Shadow of the Colossus before? No, I have not. You are missing out. Well, that was, wasn't this for the PlayStation 3? 2, 3, and oh. 4. Because, I, I mean... I don't know how I never came across it on the two, but I never had a three, four or, you know, even five. So, you know, if it 
if it True. wasn't the one that I came across in the PlayStation two time, then never would have gotten a chance to play it. Very true. <clears throat> so after graduating from the Osaka university of arts, Fumitsu Ueda tried to make a career out of being a visual artist. He had an Amiga computer and kind of like was into computer stuff and the arts and the 3D graphics coming up. You know, he was talks about an interview about being inspired by the CGI of Jurassic Park circa 1993. So he was, you know, he was in it. He was in it to win it. But he really didn't really didn't do anything terribly exciting for those couple years. So he came to the conclusion that he wanted to work in the video game industry instead. So in 1995, he applied to work at a studio named Warp, which was run by uh, noted musician and video game designer Kenji Ino. When later asked about Ueda in a rare interview, Ino said that Ueda didn't even pass the application process in the beginning. But I still remember the work he submitted. It was about a dog running in the rain. His technology as an animator, as a CG artist, wasn't that great, but his ideas and concepts really struck me. So even though he wasn't originally on a hiring list, I handpicked him because I saw his potential. It's interesting that Eno remembers a dog running in rain because in a subsequent interview later on, Ueda talks about, was asked about what he submitted to Warp, and he talks about an animation where he... Uh, it was a car driving in the rain. Maybe there was a dog he didn't mention in the interview, but I just think it's funny that those two have different perspectives like that. So they got the rain right. At least they're on the same page about it raining, you know? Wasn't there a uh, a book about that? The Art of Driving in the Rain with something about a dog? I have no clue. I have it the slightest. Interesting. I thought you were an English guy. Yep. So Warp as a studio at this time was interesting to say the least. The company was best known for creating interactive movies and Eno himself was best known for Wikipedia describes him as uh, being known for rebellious marketing techniques. So Fumitsu Ueda was an animator on a game called Enemy Zero. Now Enemy Zero was a horror themed adventure game appropriate because it's October Uh, that was developed and published uh, for the Sega Saturn. You play as an astronaut who awakens from cryogenic sleep, only to find your ship overrun by invisible creatures who are trying to kill you. So basically, these different creatures emit different tones, and you have to use the sound to listen for these enemies in order to pinpoint where they are and kill them, or avoid them altogether. Now, Enemy Zero was originally going to be a Sony PlayStation title, but during the development process, Eno started having some issues working with Sony. He was particularly irritated because he felt that they didn't hold up their end of the bargain related to the manufacturing of pre-orders on one of their previous games. They made an agreement, I believe, where like they were going to manufacture like 100,000 copies of this game, and then they decided that it was only going to be half of that. And then in turn, they only manufactured like a quarter of that. So he wasn't very happy. And and they had this policy where they had to approve the marketing campaigns of all third party games. And so, you know, just he wasn't thrilled at all with the situation. So it's 1996. And in Tokyo, PlayStation has an expo literally called PSX the PlayStation Expo, and Enemy Zero is being unveiled. There's a lot of hype around it because D, literally the letter D, which was Warp's previous title, was well-received, and everyone was looking for more of the same from that studio. So this is a Sony private event, and they're building on the momentum of the PlayStation release. Like I said, this is 96. PlayStation 1 was 94. We're only a couple of years into that generation of consoles It's wildly successful. We know that about the PlayStation release. So they're showing off the goods, right? Yeah, I'd say so. There's 229 games being shown at this expo from 78 different companies. They're all fantastic titles for the PlayStation. And Enemy Zero is one of the games that everyone's hyped about. I stumbled upon an article in Next Generation magazine that said that uh, leading up to this event, 
the Japanese journalists were already in a frenzy over Enemy Zero. So there's pest press pest. There's a pesto conference. There's a press conference. Enemy Zero is revealed to the world, and at the end of that clip, the PlayStation logo appears, as it does with any preview. And then it slowly transitions into the Sega Saturn logo. And Eno tells everyone that this game is now a Saturn exclusive. Nice. That's a slap in the face. <laughs> and so it was. It was a Saturn exclusive. Actually, it was eventually released on Windows. It's only ever been released on Saturn Windows. And um, to be fair to the situation, you've probably never heard of Enemy Zero because it was a Sega Saturn game. So Yeah, that makes sense because I definitely had not heard of this one. Yeah, there are very few, very few Sega Saturn games that have passed the test of time type deal. So while this is going on, like I said, there were other games, other studios that are showing off products uh, at uh, the Expo, the PSX. And one of those is Japan Studio. Japan Studio was founded in November of 1993. It was a joint venture between Sony Corporation and Sony Music Entertainment Japan. And it's one of the first developers to come out of the PlayStation project. I mean, it's 93. PlayStation came out in 94. This is, it's pretty much the, the first party developer that's been there since the beginning. And there's this understanding now that we have that the team from Sony Music brought to it the culture of the music industry in that with music, the vision is to find talented musicians, to hire them, and then to support them as they create popular hits. So out of this culture, you get these projects that are all built around the vision of a single person kind of the way the video game industry did it way back when, you know, but we had been transitioning out of that. Uh, we've actually covered Japan studio before way back in episode 64, when we learned about the history of Parappa, the rapper, it was also born in this environment in Japan studio. And it was one of the direct inspirations that helped Ueda choose where he wanted to work next. Parappa the Rapper was, I believe, Zero. It was called the studio was Zero. Like it was the it was the renegade, like, ah, we're gonna do whatever we want studio. But still came out of the same environment. You see, Ueda, as an animator at Warp, almost all of his time was spent working on character motion rendering. So as an artist, he would just get handed a script that, like, take enemy zero, for example. The literally he would be handed a piece of paper that said Laura does blank here. Laura does picks up a box here. And it would be up to the animators to plot out what that looks like and create the structure of what was actually going to happen visually there. So as Ueda described it in a later interview, having half, as he called it, of a director's control with these scenes in this way, when he goes and sees the scenes from Enemy Zero, he thinks to himself, if I was in charge, I would have done it this way. Or if I could have only changed the script here, it would have been much a better it would have been a much better scene. And that experience working that way as an animator enemy zero made Ueda recognize that he wanted to make his own game. So he arranged to have a meeting to introduce himself with Sony Computer Entertainment. As Enemy Zero was being developed and Ueda was doing what game developers do, you know, showing their game off to the press, he remembered being really impressed by a pair of Sony games. One was called IQ the Intelligent Cube, and the other was Parappa the Rapper. Parappa was especially huge, he later said in an interview. The first time I saw it was at the Tokyo Game Show, I believe. It looked so much higher quality than the 3D rendering movies I was making. It was 3D, but the way they used the paper cutouts, I remember that I went back to the game show a second time just to see Parappa again. I had loved the game's style. It seemed to draw a line between itself and what had previously been called quote-unquote video games. It felt like something new, and I think that this was what impressed me the most. So, of course, Ueda wanted to be part of that culture, right? 
So he arranges for a meeting with Sony Computer Entertainment, and he sits down with them. And after one meeting, they're ready to get him to come work for them. But Ueda at the time was in this place where he really wanted to be a director. He was really interested in particular in like creating and directing his own movie scene. So basically, Sony says, hey, come work for us. And he goes, look, there's this thing I really want to do. Can you give me three months? And they say, sure. What do you need three months for? And he says, I want to work on this movie project. And they say, look, come work for us now and we'll let you make the movie project while you work for us. And with that, Ueda gets hired into Japan Studios Product Development Department number one. And he gets to work on his movie. And this movie started out as a vision of Boy Meets Girl, a story where two main characters would hold hands during their adventure, forming a bond between them without communication. He gets his three months. He spends them with an assistant putting together something together, putting it all together. And this movie becomes the pilot movie by which the concept of his first game came from. And this, of course, would become over the next of the next four years or so, the 2001 action adventure game Eco. So Eco is a game that is frequently cited in discussions about video games as art. You know, that is a topic that we broach commonly here in our podcast. You know, it's really great when you can let the content take the center stage when you're working on creating things like our podcast. You know, thanks to the tools that we use to create this podcast, I can spend the time fleshing out topics like video games as art, as opposed to spending time just putting all the pieces together. And of course, in our case, we use the all-in-one podcasting tool suite made by the folks at Zencaster. With Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It allows you to record up to 4K video with your guests. And with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection is unstable. With Zencaster, you never have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes all those filler words, those ahs and ums and sos, removes those awkward pauses in conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and reduce background noise, and this is all done with the click of a button. And if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, relax. Those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and easily distribute it to Spotify, Apple, as well as other major destinations. So if you'd like to start your own podcast or maybe you already have one and you need to take it to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code MemoryCardLane and you'll get 30% off the first month of any Zencaster paid plan. So sign up for Zencaster today. And you can experience the same ease in producing your own high-quality podcast as we do week in and week out. Go out there and make the next great podcast creation with a great set of tools that are provided by Zencaster. So we have this development team at Sony Computer Entertainment, Japan Studio. They also have their own great set of tools. They're working within what's now known as Sony Computer Entertainment International's production studio number one. And they're a group of people after ICO. That is what they're known as. They're, they're, they're now known as Team ICO. And they've just released ICO. And it's time to sit down and figure out what's next. So Wada sits down. And he starts to kind of reevaluate some of their old ideas, stuff that they cut out of the game, the uh, eco stuff that they just couldn't implement or work, and then just some some random ideas that that never you know that they just kind of tossed around. Eco, which I'm not gonna 
get into completely because I want to do an episode on it someday. Switched in the middle of development from a PlayStation to a PlayStation 2 game. It was a four-year development, and literally at the two-year mark, they realized that they couldn't do what they wanted to do on the PlayStation. PlayStation 2 was just around the corner. They threw everything away. They restarted production as a, a I mean, as much as you can restart production, uh, you know, because the design's already there. They turned it into a PlayStation 2 game. But, you know, there was all these things that they kind of learned and also left on the table because of the way the development happens. So it was a long, long development process, right? Four years. And the development team was tired. They had just made Eco. Making a game like that requires a lot of planning and thought. It is a puzzle-ish platform game. So they really weren't interested in making another single player game that had all the complex level design that they would have to work through like they had just finished doing. So they wanted to step away from that and scrap that notion. And the team was in favor of designing an online multiplayer game that they tentatively titled Nico, which was a portmanteau. We've learned that word before. Love it. Uh, of Ni, which is two in Japan, and Eco. And then they began to flesh out the initial concept for the game, right? They started, you know, Ueda had his vision with the idea of cruelty as a means of expression. This was a time period in which Grand Theft Auto 3 was super popular. And it was everywhere and he was asked about it and he saw it. I don't know if he played it. That wasn't clear, but he saw in it a lot of cruelty and he decided that that was the end thing. And he wanted to use that concept, the concept of cruelty as a means of expression, but not like Grand Theft Auto. He wanted to use it, but do it differently. You know, in an IGN interview, Uedo and his producer, Kenji Kato, recalled an early discussion in the development process in which Ueda talks about playing a variety of video games that have large bosses in them. And in these games, you would have to shoot at the bosses from a distance. As part of this conversation, I mean, we've, we've, there's lots of games like that, right? I, I, mean, I mean, I think of it and like, I... I don't when it says large, are we talking like physically large or are we talking like large health pools or things physically large? Because I mean, yeah, there's definitely some in some games, but I feel like a lot of the ones that I played, even if they're giant bosses, are still pretty close range combat. I I'm not I guess I've not played a whole lot with far away combat. Now, I think back in the day, you had a lot of game. Like, if you go back to like Nintendo arcade design and before that, you had a lot of that. Even like, like Zelda, he described the the you know the concept of this game is is fighting these giant creatures called colossi. He described the colossi in one interview as inverted Zelda dungeon dungeons. So I'm going to go to Zelda for a second because Zelda is one of the inspirations for this game. Even in like the original Zelda, almost all the bosses that you come to a are larger than Link. And while you can swing your sword at them, like the ideal way to defeat them would be at full health in which your sword shot out from you. You could like, you know, throw a projectile with your sword. And that's how that would be the ideal way to beat the enemies in the original Zelda. And I think that's more or less the concept that he's talking about. How you just have these bosses whose designs are bigger than the main character, and the ideal way to fight them would be from afar, so to speak. Yeah, I guess I figured that that makes sense. I mean, just there were a lot of games like that. I mean, I get what you're saying. But I mean, your point is Ueda's point. You know, in the same conversation, he asked the question, like, instead of shooting them, why can't I just walk up to them, climb them, and stab them with the sword? And this is this is the concept. That is that is literally what this game is. Walk up the Colossi, climb up Colossi, and stab Colossi with the sword. So that's the basis upon which they begin to shape 
the identity of this project, you encounter enormous fictional characters and you defeat them. So the team sits down and they have to consider how to turn this concept into Nico. And since old habits die hard, they decided that they would form an animation team to develop a concept video for the project. So a storyboard gets created in January of 2002. The team spends the next four months creating a short film to illustrate their concept. They finish it in May. They visualize this video in the eco engine. They render it on PS2 hardware. It depicts a group of three masked horned boys who are riding horseback across a vast landscape and they attack a towering being that is very reminiscent of one of the bosses in Shadow of the Colossus. So they take this video and it becomes the, the basis for what they're creating. In June, a small group gets assigned to start building out a prototype of Nico for testing purposes. The team wanted to spend more time fleshing out the technological aspects up front of the project, something they felt that they really didn't do enough of during the development of Eco, you know, hence why they kind of ditched it and started over in the middle. One of their initial challenges was what is what what Ueda and he referred to this concept in a I found a lot of interviews where he said this phrase organic collision deformation it is the con yeah i know right what is organic collision deformation yeah yeah please please elaborate so it's the concept of realistic character physics being enacted in relation to the movement of colossi so for example if the colossi has his arm hanging to the side and you grabbed onto it you'd be climbing up it but if he reached out horizontally you'd expect your character to be able to run across it because it was, it'd be like running on flat ground at that point. And that sounds so simple in today's day and age, but back then designing an engine and a model and the programming to make that happen was not something that had been done. Oh, cause you'd have to change like the characteristics of it between one I mean, position just, in the other. Just, yeah, you would just have to program the physics of. I mean, they literally started out with a model of a cl- character climbing a just a pole, like it's a round cylinder that's raised up, and they put their character model on it to climb it, and then they manipulated that pole in various ways, and like programmed the character to react to said ways. Right? Like, is it hang? You know, can you run on it flat? Does it hang weird if it's horizontal? Well, what if you're what if it's facing this way? How does he hang? What if you shake it back and forth? How does he look like they they literally spent time six months time, in fact, working on this functionality, um, coding a physics based simulation of all these scenarios of when and where and how the character is, you know, having him be able to react to almost being stomped on seeing how it would look when he shaked off something. Um, they spent a lot of time making sure that this physics model was going to be realistic because if it didn't, frankly, because of the type of game this is, which we're going to continue to go into, it would have taken people out of it in a way that, I mean, doesn't happen because of how they did it, you know? Yeah. Are you familiar with this game? At least I know you haven't played through it, but have you watched video of it? Or are you familiar with it at least? I mean, the only thing I can really think of that I know of this is just fighting the giant monster, the Colossi. Um, I've not seen other anything other than that. It's just I'm sure it was cut scenes of the game or something, or maybe it was cut scenes of a similar game, but I I couldn't tell you for certain. I've never looked it up or had seen someone else playing it or anything. Um, I just know I've seen some cutscenes or some maybe it was gameplay of some normal sized human or something fighting Colossi. Early in our run of this podcast, I had you play through Journey and you really liked it, didn't you? Yeah, you would really like this in the same vein. It it the. The same stuff you really enjoyed about Journey and that you touched on when we talked about Journey 
is all the same reasons why you would really like Shadow, just to be honest with you. So okay, uh, it's something that someday if you ever have an opportunity, like you trip on a copy or, you, you know, you get a new PlayStation, and they keep remastering it for every subsequent generation like they already have. This is one that you should probably put on your list. So. So May of 2003, they finish a demonstration build of Nico. They present it to Sony. You know, Team Eco has a reputation. Eco was Eco was well, very well received, you know, and, and here's another project by Team Eco. So they, of course, greenlight the project. And that technology demo is then spread throughout all of Sony's offices. Like, hey, look and see what the PlayStation 2 can do. Which, of course, means it's leaked to the press. And then all this speculation begins about it being an actual sequel to Eco, which it's an easy assumption to make. Its name is Eco 2, right, Nico? Yeah. The video for the video, the team didn't want to spend any money on it, so they used assets from Eco. So it looks like Eco. It's an easy assumption. But the truth of the matter is, is that the team never really looked at this project as a true sequel. It is a spiritual successor. It's a prequel uh, to some people, but it, it has never, it was, they never approached it like it was a sequel to, to eco. So, so here we are, the project's greenlit. They have to lay down the plans to make this a massively multiplayer online game, not literally an MMO, but they were going to make it a multiplayer game. So they sit down, they look at their team, they talk to their team, they look at their, the word they use was professional profiles. I, I, I took the, I had a lot of opportunity to read and watch interviews from Ueda. So they took some time because they wanted to like plan and make sure that they had this down. And they just, they realized while doing this, that they, they didn't have the technical expertise to pull it off. They didn't have, it was a small team at this point. I, I don't, I want to say, I don't even want to make assumptions. It was a small team at this point, but they didn't have multiplayer in their portfolio. They didn't have networking specialists or anything like that. And so how are they going to pull it off? How are they going to pull it off with the time and money they were given? You know, it is definitely a pretty tall order. So. They made the decision at that point just to abandon the online concept and reapproach the project as a single player experience. So with that, Nico goes into production with the knowledge that it's going to be single player. That began in September of 2003. Because of the change of plans, the team decided to kind of discard what they had done to, to up until this point. So they discarded Eco's development tools. Uh, they wrote a whole new set of utilities to aid in the continued development of Nico. In the end, they ended up with a completely new dedicated game engine on which to build their new title. They brought with them everything they had learned through the first, you know, the production of Eco, all the stuff that they had learned, you know, with that technology demo, um, and so on and so forth. So all the stuff that they had learned all the stuff that they had learned, they kind of brought with them time to get to work. They now have a larger budget than before. They have more resources from Sony is the point larger budget, you know, the full support, so on and so forth. So they decide that they can hire more people. They through word of mouth, they spread it out to the, you know, the industry that they're looking for people and they get about 500 applications. They hire 10 of them. Ueda later admitted that he only felt that only one or two actually met his criteria. Little fun fact there. To plan out the game's actual visual elements, Ueda used 3D computer graphics software. Up until this point, he had been sketching things down on paper. That was how Eco was done. But he later said that he decided to do 3D computer graphics here because the necessity to transform the hand-drawn artwork into polygonal shapes would cause the reproduced assets level of detail to be vastly reduced. I guess that doesn't make sense to me. 
he felt that he felt that his work would lose detail if they when they were transferring it from from hand drawn to to 3D. So Environmental designer Kuji Hasegawa noted that the scenery graphics were drastically reworked on several occasions because Ueda urged him as his, and his colleagues to reinforce the light tones and the coloring of the areas and to accentuate the brightness and the saturation of the textures. I have illustrated all this because I want to make a note that the development process for this project was very demanding for the team. Fan expectations, the hype was very high for another game from Team Eco, and no doubt Ueda and the team were feeling the pressure. And if it wasn't obvious with these few examples, Ueda was known to have perfectionistic tendencies to say the least, and he often demanded revisions of the game as a result. According to both him and Kaido, the producer in a GameSpy interview, Ueda's insistence on exercising personal supervision over the artistic facets of the development as someone who is a perfectionist with a crystal clear vision. This was a factor in the emergence of almost all the bottlenecks that the team encountered as they continued to work on the game. Despite this, though, despite this, Ueda is known to have the respect of his teams because he has a hands-on approach and is intimately familiar with just about every aspect of the development of his titles. He is also known to be frequently there alongside his team after hours contributing to his projects. But even with a crystal clear vision, there are always going to be factors that are working against you. Just as the team hit technological limitations during the production of Eco, they too hit walls when it came to this project. Initially, they had intended for there to be 48 Colossi in Nico, but that was quickly reduced to 24 when they realized that they couldn't maintain the quality that they were looking for with the assets and technology that they had on hand. As they continued to work through everything, uh, even 24 looked to be a stretch, so they eventually settled on the 16 found in the original game. They had also originally wanted to simulate a full night and day cycle with weather variations, but the PS2's memory capacity just limited every bit of what they wanted to do. There was a two-player gameplay mode that was planned at one time, but it had to be scrapped because they didn't have the development time to see it through. So, you know, they tried to do things, and they found themselves... They did the smart thing, right? They narrowed down the design of their game until they knew they could create the core of it in as high a quality as they felt they could. Yeah, definitely something that some other developers should probably have considered doing as well. Um, for Eco, they used a concept called design by subtraction they started out with all these things they want and they kept taking things away until they got to what ego is today and in hindsight they talk about how like maybe there was a little bit too much of that and while there is a little bit of that here in shadow of classes it's not nearly as drastic but it's kind of the same concept where they started out with these big big plans and then they kind of pared them down but i think a lot of developers do that you know after the game we talked about last week and how they developed that one, and, you know, go listen to last week's episode, haha. Uh, I don't know, because it seems like it's completely different, in my, unless maybe I'm... I don't know. No, no it's kind of the same. Well, hold on. So, so they're creating this single-player experience, right? They are working on it. They're working through all these technical limitations. And this game is technologically impressive, but... That's not what it's best known for. It's probably better known for, one, its art style. Um, Ueda later said that he wanted this game to exhibit the density of a painting. So he visited geographical landmarks of the southeastern United States, like the Grand Canyon and Death Valley. And he took inspiration from these landmarks that we have here in the U.S., 
from there, the team modeled all of the game's environments through the pro- a process that they call creating, testing, and tuning, which is ironic that you just brought that up, which is a concept we talked about last week in the history of Portal. That's what I wrote in my notes. Nice. <laughs> wow, look at that. It's like I read your mind. There you go. The arrangement of this game of Shadow of the Colossus stems from Arts Nico at this point. It has all these colossi. There's 16 of them. We've established that. And each of them are in their own arena, this independently constructed battleground. So they shaped each, each arena, so to speak, specific to the colossi that you would fight in it. They tested out the arena. They adjusted it accordingly, and they continued to do so until it made sense and it worked for the gameplay, the style, so on and so forth. So they did the same thing. What they call last week, iterate. I know iterate was part of it. I can't remember the three words, but iterate was part of it. Like design, test, iterate. Wasn't that it? Uh, <laughs> it definitely sounds right, Dave. But uh, okay. if those were the exact words, I don't know. So uh, yeah, don't, right. don't quote me on that. That's all right. So to find the overall look of the game, the team, they kind of researched several visual styles, several visual genres, and they came to develop their own graphical style. It utilizes grayish and light tones to underscore the ambience they were going for. The way it calls the look of the game firm feeling. I don't even know what that means. And they they built the arenas and then they just kind of built the areas around it, right? So you have the arenas, but then you need to get from arena A to arena B and the game just kind of designed itself in that way. They put the pieces together and then made these inter areas until everything just kind of Everything just kind of made sense. So it's not just known for its art style. It's also known for its emotional storytelling. This is mostly achieved through nonverbal means uh, alongside a pretty cool melancholic soundtrack. Speaking of the melancholic soundtrack, that was not a popular decision at first with the development team. One thing that happens is when you defeat each each colossi, like this really sad song transitions to a really sad song that plays. And Ueda in one interview talks about how like the first time he ever did play that for the staff, a bunch of them laughed. And then it got real awkward because they realized he was serious about it. And even though they wanted to like him, they they thought it like some still thought like this is hokey. We don't like it. Like it is like, no, nope, we're going to leave it. And in hindsight, like the player base, like it's a positive thing. The player base talks about. But like, I think that's a funny story. It's definitely worth a chuckle or two, Dave. Yeah, a chuckle. Yeah. So they did the storytelling, you know, and he kind of used the same theme of the boy and the girl and and putting it together and. You know, he 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 gets criticized for going back to this trope of the, the boy rescues the girl and the boy and girl and this emotional connection. But, you know, he claims that this isn't he wasn't really going for a repeat of that. It just kind of happened in the process to him. The story kind of tells itself. So anyways, you know, they they put the game together, right? They put the game together. Late 2004, after about two years of development, we see on one of Sony's internal schedules the first mention of the final title of the game, the Japanese title at least, which is called Wanda and the Colossus. In case you're wondering why. Yeah, that's 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 quite the name, Dave. Uh, what's what's the uh, what's the deal there? The main character's name is Wanda, which translates to Wander in English. Oh, here I was thinking it was like wanda like wanda and cosmo or maybe wanda maximoff or you know but wander makes it's uh, definitely an interesting translation well, yeah wander and the colossus doesn't really roll off the tongue it's not it doesn't sound very cool because it sounds like wandering colossus for starters now that i'm saying it out loud um, yeah but i mean yeah. does that not describe the game 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know about that. Oh, they don't really wander. They're just chilling in their spot. Yeah. Standing there waiting to get scaled and killed. Not quite standing there waiting to get scaled and killed, but they don't really wander outside of their arenas. But they're, yeah, whatever. Mm. Yeah, so Wander into Colossus probably wouldn't have resonated with North American audiences, so they rebranded it as Shadow of the Colossus when they reintroduced it to us over here stateside. Horse then makes its way through trade shows and playtesting. The hype just grows and grows and grows each time they show it because it's shaping up to be a really impressive title. I, I was part of that. I owned this game when it first came out team puts the pieces together they wrap up their work on the project and it gets released to north american audiences on october 18th 2005 so if you don't know like rob because you've never played it yeah shadow of the colossus is an action adventure game it follows wander a young man who enters an isolated and abandoned region of a realm seeking the power to revive a girl that he brings with them named mono <clears throat> in order to revive mono you have to locate and destroy 16 massive colossi that are spread across this forbidden land uh, you travel across the land on horseback or foot throughout your journey once you find a colossus you have to discover its weakness uh, you have to discover its weakness. Each Colossus has its own arena, its own unique lair, so to speak. And in most encounters, you have to use some aspect of that lair to your advantage. That is not so true in the beginning. The first two battles really take place on just like really vast flat areas of land where like the only goal that you have is how to learn how to like scale the Colossi and attack their weak points. But as you move through the rest of the Colossi, you have to use the environment to your advantage. There are some Colossi that you can only reach off of platforms or cliffs. There's one that's only accessible like through his feet in a cave. Another one has to be coaxed out of water. There's a desert one that's kind of like the sandworms from Dune that it pops out of the desert. The bane of my absolute existence is a flying Colossi. They're just awesome. Honestly, the designs of Colossi are so cool. They resemble different things. There's giant men, men like one, which is what I assume you saw in the video, Rob. Uh, you know, I no, I swear it was like a, a giant. I mean, like a troll. But maybe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really no, can't. Yeah, remember. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a troll would probably. I mean, the cover has that on it. The first Colossi, which is the, the the trailer and the videos and everything you see talked about, it shows the first one, which honest to God looks like a giant troll. It's a fair statement. So, but other than like the troll one, which is what I was talking about, where it's like shaped like a man, because troll and men kind of look, you know, they're both standing on two feet type deal. There's bull like bulls, one shaped like a horse. There's a crab. There's an eel. The flying one is kind of like a dragon. There are some cool Colossi designs and some cool dungeons. So between the Colossi fights, is there is it mostly just like walking, interacting that's with the it. environment? Or is there other bat? Oh, so that's it. No, there's no other battles it. or anything? Nope, there's nothing. Okay. They made the decision to not put anything else in there. Uh, that's talked about. We just said, why? What's the point of having other enemies? Like, we're not building a leveling system. We're not going to do anything where you're going to benefit from those other battles. They're not going to teach you something new about how to defeat the Colossi. Why? There was no point, in all honesty. Um, The only other thing in the barren landscape is he asked them to put animals. Like, so there are small animals throughout the landscape. Okay. I have never played another game that made me feel two things one is so small the scope of this game the way this game creates scale at the time it was one of a kind i mean other other games have kind of done it now that that are similar but like uh, even still like i feel the same way because it's nostalgic Uh, this game makes you like the sense of scale that this game conveys is amazing 
and the sense of loneliness. Like you and your horse are it because the Colossi are not human creatures. The Colossi are, doesn't matter what they are, but they're not. You are, I mean, without giving anything else away, you're it, right? And you're riding on horseback across these. And when I say you feel small, like massive landscapes, massive landscapes. And there's nothing but you and a barren landscape and a really beautiful soundtrack. And like, you just, you feel it. Like you feel alone and small. And that is what has always stuck out to me about this game. It, it does a really amazing job at the sense of scale and the, the sense of how just barren this environment is, but does it in a way that you're not bored with it. Because if you take that too far, you're going to get bored, you know? Right. This is an awesome game. This, this is an awesome game. Um, I love it. I've played it. I own it on the PS2 and the PS3. I never bought the PS4 remake. This is one of my games where we talk about, you know, back and forth, back and forth, like video games is art. This is one of the games that for me should always be part of that conversation. It is a game that says a lot by saying almost nothing because there is so little dialogue in this game. It's not to say there's none. But there's so little dialogue in this game. I'm not the only one who feels that way. To say that Shadow of the Colossus is an influential game, I feel is kind of an understatement. There are many, many game designers that cite it as an influence in their, you know, towards their video games and interviews. Just pull up its Wikipedia page. Um, it has a whole list of games and links to interviews of people that have cited it as their inspiration. God of War 2 and 3, uh, the designers of Titan Souls, Pray for the Gods, Death Gambits. It was cited as an inspiration for Breath of the Wild. Not That's like not a nobody title, you know? I don't know about that, dude. <laughs> and it was even cited as an inspiration towards Elden Ring. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Film director Guillermo, Guillermo well now video game designer too, right? Um, Guillermo, Guillermo Guillermo, why can't I say his stupid name? Guillermo del Toro, in a 2008 interview, uh, when he was asked about his video game hobby, said that the only two games that I consider to be masterpieces are Eco and Shadow of the Colossus. So uh, both of the titles by uh, our yeah. friend here. By by Ueda and Ueda. Team Eco. That's interesting. Um, but hey, to each their own, I guess. Well, now there's, yeah. Um, I don't know, because I think that there are some other games that would fit into that category as well. But, you know, I mean, no, there definitely are, you know, like they... journey, like you, you hit on it. I said yeah, a journeys? lot about journey that, in my opinion, was another one. Yeah, it is. But I guess journey. was that that was 2008. OK, all no, right. No, journey's in the same conversation. Journey is one of the other games that's frequently added to it. You know, that but I'm just saying as far as Guillermo said, but uh, I mean, 2008 well, journey wasn't around then, was it? No. I think 2010, so. 2011 would have been journey. So he just hadn't had a chance at that point to to play the game and understand that it was among them. Well, and now he makes video games himself. So like, you know, eh, I mean, come on. You think he's going to toot his own horn? I don't know. He only makes masterpieces. Is that, that what we're getting at? I mean, he could make horror masterpieces if they had ever let him finish PT. So. I mean, yeah, you're right. That That's a good point. It could have been. So Shadow of the Colossus is a work of art. And with all works of art, we have to work to keep them alive and part of culture for as long as possible. Or we just want a lot of money from things. You know, Sony has uh, kept the art alive, so to speak, by updating Shadow of the Colossus with the Times. In 2003, it was remastered along Eco for the PlayStation 3. And it was released as the Eco and Shadow of the Classes Collection, which is what I own. The This was graphically overhauled to support 1080p devices. They added support for stereoscopic 3D and 7.1 surround sound. 
They also added support for uh, PSN PlayStation Network trophies. That wasn't a thing during the PlayStation 2 era. And then they updated Shadow of the Colossus once again in 2018. They released a remake of the game using ultra-high-definition art assets. That was released in February of 2018 for the PS4. The gameplay of that one is identical to the original. They literally used the code base from the PS2 game, and they gave it a new control scheme. That's all they did. So yeah, so I have a few copies. I played a few of these games. I would highly, highly, highly recommend them. If you're looking for a moody game, you know, like some that that's not moody games, storytelling games, narrative games. That's not what everyone's into. There are always going to be the people in the world that hate that and just want to play the the bang, bang Call of Duties of the world. Right. Hmm. Yep. Um, speaking of which, Microsoft owns them now. Did oh, you know that they finalized I, the, the finalized the purchase of Activision Blizzard yesterday? I had no idea. Sixty nine billion dollars. Microsoft paid sixty nine billion dollars for Activision Damn. Blizzard. It is the biggest video game company acquisition ever. It's awesome. That is massive. So, so now like World of Warcraft and and Starcraft and Diablo and Call of Duty are all Microsoft owned titles now. They also own King, so Candy Crush is now Microsoft title too. What a crazy timeline. I know. I'm I right. Anyway, if you're not looking for those uh those type of games and you are looking for a moody narrative uh work of art, go play Shadow of the Colossus. You will not be disappointed. There's really no other way to experience it. They've been in talks to do a film adaption of this game since like 2009, but nothing has ever panned out. After Shadow of the Colossus, Team Eco began work on another project. It was revealed at E3 2009 to be The Last Guardian. Um, Fumitu Ueda left Sony in December of 2011, but he stayed under contract to finish The Last Guardian. In mid-2014, he formed Gen Design, which is made mostly up of members of Team Eco. Although Team Eco's closing has never been formally announced, it's largely considered to have gone defunct when Ueda left in 2011. Gen Design ended up finishing The Last Guardian. That was released in 2016. In 2018, Ueda revealed that Gen Design was prototyping a new game, but since then, we've only seen one little teaser in 2021. One of Gen Design's New Year's postcards features screenshots from Ego, Shadow, and Guardian. Then there was an unidentified screenshot of a person underneath a mechanical structure. The assumption is that it was a screenshot from a new game, but we know absolutely nothing else about it. So I'm secretly hoping he just trolled everyone with a random picture. <laughs> so uh, That'd be good. And that's it. Go play Shadow of the Colossus. Go play anything by Team Eco. We didn't talk about Eco today or The Last Guardian, but go play anything. Shadow of the Glasses, in my in my opinion, is the the best of the three. There's always people that are going to debate between Eco or Shadow. The general consensus is The Last Guardian is not as good as the two of them. Um, it's still good, but it it it's not as good. But Eco or Shadow, either one of those, they're fantastic. Personally, for me, it's Shadow of the Glasses. Like that's. That is peak form. That's peak form. So. But yeah, crazy, crazy to think of that. You know, this man worked for a weird studio company and then like. He saw Parappa the Rapper one day and he's like, I want to go work for Sony. And that took him down a path where he made some of the most recognizable video games in artistic conversation. It's definitely a crazy concept. Uh, and, you know, Dave, it's it's crazy to also think that Parappa the Rapper is a game that we've talked about in the past. So is there somewhere that people can go to find things out like that? There is. So, like I said, we talked about Parappa the Rapper episode 64 on our website. You can find all of our old old episodes. There is an uh archive for old episodes on our website which is www.memorycardlane.com rob what are the rest of the links what else can people do with our website 
Well, Dave, people can find Calendar of Future Episodes, you know, maybe put in some comments there that you have about some games, you know, a little bit of fun uh, knowledge about producers or developers or the game itself, maybe a little fun Easter egg that it's not commonly known. You can find links to things such as our Patreon, where for a couple bucks, you can help support Dave and I get access to episodes that are both ad free and edit free so you can hear all of those ums ahs oohs ohs and the expletives that are cut out by our great friends over at zencaster you can also find links to things such as our discord where you can come hang out with dave and i play video games talk video games or just tell everyone that or tell dave that he's wrong which i mean that makes sense, considering that our social medias, uh, Dave can be found on several platforms as David underscore is underscore wrong. And Dave, where can I be found? You can be found on various platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor. <laughs> there you go, Dave. I had to think about that one. I don't ever <laughs> have to announce you. I literally had to think about that one. I, I liked I had to switch it up on you. See if you are on. Keep you on your toes, man. Come on. Yeah. On my toes is fair and fair enough. Keep me on my toes each week, <laughs> each week, ladies and gentlemen, each week we tell you the history about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, which, of course, this week was Shadow of the Colossus, uh, something about what it took from the world as its inspiration. In this case, Parappa the Rapper, I guess. Uh, no, not not the game directly or what they get back to the world in their legacy. Uh, one of the best parts about doing this podcast is as we gear up for it every single week and do our research, we learn things. And, you know, that's that's kind of the beauty of teaching. When you when you go to teach, you're always learning. It's a beautiful cycle of learning and teaching and a, and a recognition of said cycle. We always go around and talk about what we've taken away from from every concept, every topic. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, I think that the first funny or the first takeaway is just a funny thing that I find hilarious is uh, back on Enemy Zero, where they uh, just decided, you know what, Sony, nah, you're done. Sega Saturn. Oh, well, I don't know if we'll have another. I mean, we'll probably have an opportunity to talk about Kenji Eno again, but that's not that's not the only thing he did. There's like another instance where he like stomped on a doll that was like the mascot for something he was against or pouting about or something like that. Um, he just has a reputation for being out there and doing it's like they said, rebellious marketing techniques. Oh, no, um, it's wonderful. I think it's just hilarious. Uh, but I think that the biggest takeaway from this is just <laughs> I find it awesome that Parappa the Rapper is what got the uh, the start, the inspiration there, because I mean, hey, we both know how much I love that game and, and how no. like it was I mean, obviously you as well. But for me, it's just like that was such an inspiration to like I love like I, honestly, I think that was what originally got me into like rhythm games and things like that. And it's just hilarious to know that like here's this awesome studio that came out of this, this incredible game from what I'm hearing. And it's just awesome to know that something like Parappa the Rapper is what got that going because that game is freaking sweet. So that's was. my takeaway. That That's my big takeaway. What about yourself? What's your uh, takeaway for this week? I, I just enjoyed this whole thing. I enjoyed learning about like their technological limitation. There's a, there's a lot more on the technology of how they built this game. I simplified the concept of like organic collision formation or what have you, but like there's some really nice interviews the nice thing about doing games like this, like, I mean, I know 2006 was a long time ago, but we do a lot of episodes from like the seventies, late seventies, eighties specifically and nineties when they weren't really thinking about preserving like the, it wasn't a hobby in the respect that they didn't think anyone would care how the sauce was made. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, that's fair. But nowadays, like they're always giving interviews and there's behind the scenes content and supplements and this and that and all this fantastic stuff there's a lot of interviews and they get really in depth about that that the technological like the developing the collision formation and how they work through it by coding this on this axis and that axis and things like that and i just you you know i really enjoy knowing all those ins ins and outs and there's a lot of really fascinating information that 
I felt I felt that I omitted here because if I had got into it, people's eyes would have started to uh, bleed, like not their ears. It would have gone in their ears and overwhelmed them so much they would be bleeding from their eyeballs. So, well, neither of those situations sound very pleasant, Dave. Nope, not at all. But yeah, it was good. Shadow of the Colossus is a great game. Go play it. And you know what, Rob? Next week, we're going to talk about a great game, too. But before I take it out of here and lead into next week, is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? As always, Dave, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone for listening. We hope you enjoy listening week in, week out, learning about these crazy things and learning how the entire world of gaming has apparently been influenced by Parappa the Rapper. So thank you. All right. Well, on that note, (laughs) that note, Next week, we're going to look at one of the best-selling games for the original PlayStation. It's the beginning of one of the franchises that has produced one of the gaming's most recognizable characters, one that is a cultural icon, and one that has been discussed in conversations from sexuality and gaming to strong women in gaming. You know, Originally released in 1996 for the Sega Saturn, Tomb Raider, and its protagonist, Lara Croft, are among the most recognized video game franchises of the modern era. Next week, we're going to learn all about the creation of Lara and Tomb Raider, and we'll spend some time talking about how Lara and those conversations around her have changed over time. So join us again next week as we do some Tomb Raiding of our own on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Skibidi-bop-bop-bop-boo-doo-ah.